this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. Silence is uncomfortable. That is, unless you're a new parent in the middle of the night after a very long week of sleeplessness and crying and diaper changes and utter chaos. Or in a hospital room where the person you love most in the world has been in pain for days and days. And finally, Finally, they've fallen asleep. Or in a town pummeled by a hurricane so strong it's been obliterating buildings for days, pelting everything in its wake with water and wind. But then it breaks, and there's sun, and stillness, and silence. Yeah, silence can be uncomfortable unless unless silence is the thing you long for most in the world. Then it can also be a signal that things have calmed down. And then silence is a relief. What if instead of seeing silence as uncomfortable, we begin to see it as something we choose? What if we begin to see it as a blessing in a chaotic world that so desperately needs a deep breath? What if we just choose to stop and listen? I think I'm learning something about myself in those moments. How about you? Maybe it's just me, but my heart is pounding right now. There's something about silence that does that to us. The sermon series is supposed to be about how our culture is screaming right now that silence is complicity and injustice in the world. That that silence is betrayal, that you have to speak up and you have to say something. Problem is, everybody disagrees on what to say. And that can be exhausting. It's exhausting. Before you can find the right words to say, you have to be in the right place to say them, right? We covered these things last week. And if you didn't hear silence, number one, I encourage you to go back on the podcast, go to fe.church slash online, watch the video from last week. You will not regret it. When our, when our soul is rested, it's so much easier to be compassionate, to be wise, to find the right words to say. And so this week... We focused on that exhaustion last week. I really wanted to be able to jump out of our culture a little bit. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody else want to jump out sometimes? Like, let me off this crazy ride. Jump out of our culture a little bit. I wanted to jump into Jesus's culture and explore the politics of his time and and how he approached all of those things and how he handled it. You know, Jesus also lived in an incredibly tumultuous political climate. Isn't that handy? (laughs) He also lived in one of those, so he might know a thing or two about it. I'm just saying, maybe. He also he lived within a culture of people that were crying out for justice and feeling unheard, unseen, unwanted. He had extremists on not just two sides, but four to deal with. 
And I really wanted to go there today. And I, I do hope to get back to that after Tim Bennett weekend. I want to explore all of those issues and ideas with you. But, but And I really tried to this week. <laughs> I kept saying, no, God, I'm going here. And God's like kept pulling me back. Kept pulling me back. It's like with most things in my life, probably, I just want to jump ahead. I just want to, I'm the overachiever type. Like, I just want to jump ahead of God, and God just keeps pulling me back. There's more we need to learn here in silence. See, I think most of us are still exhausted. One week is not enough to cover the spiritual exhaustion we may all be feeling throughout this season. You may have gotten a lot out of last week's message, but... The glow faded after a day or so. The rest faded. You went right back to being exhausted. And it's okay to be tired. We covered last week, it's not a defect to sleep. But it's not okay to stay exhausted forever. Your body will break down, and I believe your spirit is the same way. It will break down after a prolonged period of exhaustion, and you must figure out how to get your soul rested in Jesus. Jesus modeled this for us, actually. But we see him constantly retreating from people. He didn't live in solitude like like John the Baptist or some of the other prophets, but he retreated to it often. The Bible says things like he, he... in the early hours of the morning, he wandered off into the wilderness to pray. Or he will, after a big success story, after feeding the 5,000, for example, what does he do? He sends the disciples away. He sends the people home, and he goes up on the mountain to pray alone throughout the night. He didn't join them till 3 o'clock in the morning, it says. He prayed. He retreated to the wilderness to pray. He did this so well. But it hit me this week that we also see people throughout the word not doing it so well. He wasn't the only one to retreat into solitude, but we see what happens when others do it as well, and I immediately thought of the story of Elijah. Anyone else know where I'm going with this by now? You can read the whole story of Elijah in just a couple of chapters in 1 Kings, but I want to tell you a little bit about his story so that by the time we get to the part we're going to read, you fully understand his mindset. See, Elijah was a prophet. He was a prophet in a time when King Ahab ruled in Israel. The Bible says that King Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any any king that came before him which was saying something. You know that if you've read First Kings lately. They're evil kings over and over and over, but we get to Ahab, and the Bible says he did more evil in the sight of God than any other. Now, Ahab was married to Jezebel, who if you were here for the Bible trivia earlier, you know that Jezebel has a reputation, right? She, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know, I think her culture gets this a little bit wrong, actually. She actually influenced King Ahab to worship Baal and to get the nation of Israel to worship She essentially prostituted out an entire nation to another god. And it wasn't about the god, really. It was about power. She was power hungry. And so she kept pushing Ahab. She kept pushing the nation into Baal worship. And if study Baal sometime throughout the Bible, it's an evil god. They're sacrificing children to him. Okay, it's, it's not a good situation in Israel right now. And so Elijah is a prophet of the Lord at this time, and he tells Ahab, there will be no rain in Israel until I say so, on God's behalf, of course. But you can imagine how this goes over, right? Elijah's not the most popular guy in Israel right now. And so the Lord takes Elijah into hiding. He, he runs to the wilderness. He goes into hiding, which just, it's interesting, isn't it? The Old Testament can teach you so much about the character of God and the way that he does things. God doesn't just stop evil all the time. He could. He's done it before. He could strike down a king and replace him. He could. But he is the God of 
nations, not just the God of individuals. He's the God of groups of people. He's the God of communities, not just the God of individuals. And so he teaches us lessons as a nation, too. In fact, sometimes God seems to allow an evil king to reign for a while just to shock Israel right back into relationship with him. So Elijah is in hiding. The ravens are feeding him for a while, bringing him meat and bread, and he's getting water from the brook. Yes, you heard that right. Ravens are feeding him. I don't know why I can't get over this detail, but ravens. God sends birds to feed him. Crazy. So God sends birds to bring Elijah food, and he's camped by the brook for a while, all alone. Birds bringing him bread and meat twice a day, but because of the drought, the no rain, eventually the brook dries up. And again, insight into the character of God. God doesn't just miraculously allow the brook to continue flowing. Again, he could, right? But sometimes even good people have to live through the consequences of bad ones. Elijah is not exempt from the drought. God is providing, though. See the difference? The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Like, good things come to all of us, bad things can come to all of us, too. This is the world we live in. God has not changed it yet, so it must, he must want it to be that way for now, right? God is providing, though. Even in the absence of resources, God provides. And so Elijah goes to this woman. God provides a a widow. He says, go and see this widow in this town, and she will feed you. I've, I've instructed her to feed you. The problem is this widow has one meal left, one thing of flour, one portion of oil. I don't know how much they needed to make bread back then, but one, that's it. And she literally tells him, I was, I was just about to gather sticks to make a fire. I was going to make my last meal and my son and I were going to die, I guess. I, nothing. I mean, it's a bleak situation, but Elijah tells her to go and make it, but give it to him instead, her last meal. And she will have enough to feed her and her son the entire length of the drought. And so she knew this to be impossible, but God said she would have enough. And so she did it. She was obedient. And sure enough, every time she went to make a meal, there was flour and there was oil in her containers. I mean, miracle after miracle. Can you see the patterns of miracles so far in Elijah's life? He's being obedient. He's listening to God And God provides miraculously over and over and over. Later in the story, the widow's son passes away. I mean, he he dies in the house, and the widow comes crying to Elijah. Elijah raises the kid from the dead. I mean, you can see amazing, humongous miracles in Elijah's life. Three years into this, Elijah sent back to Ahab. Three years of hiding. Solitude waiting for the Lord to keep his promises, to restore him in the sight of Israel, right? And just put yourself in Elijah's shoes for a second. Three long years, and yes, God is providing. Yes, he is doing miracles, but it's been three years of waiting. And what follows next is a series of big things. Uh, Ahab of course, is not happy, right? He wants to kill Elijah. But Elijah offers this huge showdown to happen between um, the prophets of Baal and God. And so they gather all the prophets of Baal in the country, 950, as we saw earlier, and they make this altar very... Um, actually, they don't, they don't make it wet until later. They All of Baal's prophets are praying to Baal and asking fire to be sent down and to destroy this altar. And Nothing happens. They pray all day, all day. Nothing happens. And then finally, Elijah's like, hey, God, if you could send fire and boom, fire from heaven. They seized, the people were convinced, and they seized 950 prophets of Baal, and they took them into the valley, and they killed them on the spot. I mean, big things are happening suddenly after three years of waiting. And then Elijah tells Ahab to go and get ready because rain is coming, and he prays. Right, And he sees a storm cloud, and the wind picks up, and he runs like the flash, literally 
You know, the, the superhero, the Flash, runs really fast. Did you know that was biblical? <laughs> okay, maybe not the whole thing, but like Elijah runs like the Flash, literally faster than the fastest chariots in all the land. He runs back to the city ahead of Ahab's chariot. If you don't believe me, 1 Kings 18.46, look it up. Surely by this point, Elijah is thinking, this is it, right? My vindication. Uh, God's going to restore me, and and I'm going to be honored as a prophet among my people. Surely this is it. This is my acceptance back into regular society. This is the end of it, right? You win, God. We win. I win. We, We get to go back. No more hiding. No more running. No more fighting for my life. I get to live again, right? Breakthrough. Have you ever been there? Just so ready for breakthrough. I feel like a lot of us maybe have been there this year. Feeling like we just keep getting beat back by this or that and and finally breakthrough, God. We've endured so much and we pray and we pray and finally light at the end of the tunnel. Hope. But there's still Jezebel to deal with. In Elijah's story, there's still Jezebel to deal with. See, sometimes even the big obvious proof Miracles, God moving. Sometimes even that isn't enough. People would rather stay in their evil than be convinced of the truth. And there is nothing you can do to change that. They're too far into their mess to be bothered with things like the one true God right now. Jezebel didn't want a God. She wanted power. Now I said there's nothing you can do to change that. God can change it. Okay, don't get that mixed up. God can change hearts and minds. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, but there was nothing Elijah could have done. I mean, he did it. He did all the big things, all the things God asked him to do, and still she was not convinced. Baal provided her power, and that is what she wanted. She sends word to Elijah that she's going to kill him. By this time tomorrow, he's going to be dead. And You would think after all this, I would think after all this, that Elijah would be like, "Uh, no, look at everything that I just did, right? I'm staying put. I'm not going anywhere, and you can't possibly kill me. I mean, God's going to send angels. He sent ravens, right? God's going to send down fire from heaven again, something. Like, no, that's not happening. But he runs. He runs. 1 Kings 19, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Pray that he might die. It's at this point in the story that I want to shake him a little bit. Just reach in there and, Elijah, like you called fire down from heaven. Right? You called rain from the sky when it hadn't rained in three years. You ran like the flash, my man. That doesn't just happen. (laughs) You serve a God that's bigger, so much bigger than all of it. Like ravens fed you. You were miraculously provided for for three solid years. You raised that kid from the dead. Come on, bro. You're afraid of a woman? I mean, women are scary, but still, not as scary as God, a God who can do all of that, right? See, I I think a part of Elijah liked his hiding place. I think he had taken on a little bit of a victim mentality. I think he liked his anxiety. I think it was like a security blanket. I think he lived there so long that even literal miracles at God's own hand through him his own hands, couldn't shake him out of it. And I think he ran back to that anxiety like a security blanket. He had built his identity around it. 
I can feel the pain in the room. <laughs> we do this, guys. We like our anxiety. Pull it over us like a blanket. And we don't know how to live in breakthrough. We don't know how to live in peace and victory. This is one of those sneaky pride things, by the way, that I talked about last week, that the victim mentality, it tricks you into thinking things that are just not true. It hides things from you. Pride hides things. Remember, we read that last week. Jesus said it. Pride hides things. God intentionally hides things from the proud. Victim mentality does that. It puts blinders on. So you're not seeing all of the good things that God has done, all of the fire from heaven and all of the rain and the raising kids from the dead and the, the flower where there was no flower. You don't see all of that. You just see the fact that God is out. God, everyone is out to get me. I've done everything right and everyone wants to kill me. Did you not just kill 950 of those guys that wanted to kill you? God handed him victory, but he didn't know how to live there. Even though God was the one providing for him in all those years of seclusion, he got used to the idea that he had to look out for himself. <laughs> and there's some good strategies here. Don't get me wrong. Right? Not all of what Elijah does here is bad. The fact that he ran and began to immediately talk to God is a good thing. Some of us run and we don't do this. Right? Like I said earlier, Jesus retreated to the presence of his Father <clears throat> to be alone often. And we don't get a lot of glimpses of those conversations between Jesus and God, but we get a glimpse of this one. Elijah big prophet man, the guy who's making all the moves. He's, he's making things happen in God's kingdom. Even he runs back to the Father. And he stomps his feet a little bit. He complains. He's a little dramatic. Sitting under that broom tree. Stomping his feet. But at any rate, this is the childlike faith that we talked about last week. This is running to your father and sitting in his lap and complaining a little bit. It's pitching a fit. Like a two-year-old in the arms of your father. Isn't that what a child would do? Run into the arms of your father and complain a little bit. And because of that, I believe God does not smite him for his lack of faith here. Doesn't reach down from heaven and strike him with lightning. The broom tree doesn't fall on him. Right? He doesn't yell and scream at him. He just lays him down for a nap. <laughs> Again, like a two-year-old. Verse 5 says, Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. Verse 7, Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him. And say, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. Wait, what journey now? Haven't I endured enough? <laughs> You're not sending me back to Jezebel, God? Like, what journey are we talking about here? Didn't, didn't I just go through all of that for a reason? Aren't you, aren't you going to give me my freedom back? Right? My, my dignity, my community, my nation, my people. Can I, can I, go, can I just go back? <laughs> That's, that's what I would have said. Anyway, don't I get to be free now? But he didn't say that. He, verse 8 says, So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. 40 days. 40 nights. It's a long journey. He didn't have a camel or donkey or something. Just him. 40 days, and God brings him further. You can feel God pulling him along. He brings him further into his presence. He draws him in. Elijah, him, not the nation, not the people that Elijah was serving, speaking to, not honestly just getting beat up by. 
This was about Elijah. The rest of it may have been about the nation, but this journey was about Elijah, and it's not a small journey. Can we just talk about for a second that God gave him a snack that fed him for 40 days? Just as a side note, again, miracle after miracle after miracle in Elijah's life. It's not a small journey, but God is drawing him closer. He doesn't smite him for throwing a fit. He draws him closer. If God wants to go deep, he's going to take you far. If God pulls you in deep, he's got more planned for you. He's going to take you far. I've just, over the past couple of years, I've learned that lesson over and over and over. Don't rush God's journey. I want to rush it all the time. That's me. I'm not like, I'm, some people want to delay it. Like, I don't know God. And we, but I'm like, God, tell me the last step and I'm going to jump to that. Right? I want to just jump over all the stuff, get to the end. Can, can we just get there? I want to rush it all the time. Don't rush it. Let it take as long as it's going to take. Because there's a promise underneath the pain. If God is doing surgery in your life, it's because he wants to bring healing. And it's not always a quick process. 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah travels. God draws him closer. He throws a fit, and God doesn't smite him. He draws him closer. And see, this is why I quote this from evangelist Johannes Amritsar all the time. And inevitably, somebody gets a little upset, but I'm saying it again because it's true. I think God prefers an honest cussing to a hypocritical hallelujah. And every time somebody gets off on the cussing part, no, God doesn't want you cussing. I'm just saying. He prefers an honest, anger-filled you to a hypocritical you. He wants to be in those conversations. He's not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your cuss words, even. (laughs) He's not. You're not going to offend him. He died for all of those selfishness, sinful things. He wants to be in those conversations. And God can work with honest. He can work with honest. He has a problem with the prideful deceit that makes us hold back. The prideful deceit that makes us want to say, oh, no, we're all good. I believe Say all the right things, but then go and do all the things that prove that we don't actually believe. Prefers the honest conversation he did with Elijah. Elijah's like, I would rather die than do what you've asked me to do. I can't do it anymore, God. God doesn't yell at him. He just pulls him in further. Come on, let's go on a trip, Elijah. I have some things to tell you. So I don't even think Elijah's victim mentality, his running his fit-throwing, his self-deprecating whining was even that big of a problem because it was honest. And it was to God. It was to God. God can work with honest. He was obedient anyway. (laughs) He still followed him, right? Our, Our emotions will eventually catch up to our obedience. Just obey. Be honest. Be afraid. Do it anyway. Do it afraid. Do it mad. Just do it. And, and God will teach you a lesson in that process. Let's keep reading 1 Kings 19 verse 9. says, But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Anyone else find this an odd question? Just traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Like I told you 40 days ago what my problem was, under the broom tree. You tell me, why am I here? (laughs) What I would have said, but no, apparently Elijah has thought about this, those 40 days in the wilderness all by himself. And he has an answer, ready, rehearsed. Verse 10, Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too not technically inaccurate, but it leaves out a lot, doesn't it? I mean, completely skips over the breakthrough that just happened now 40 days ago, right? This is what happens when we get stuck in a victim mentality, though. 
We skip over all of the good things. We have those blinders on. We can only see the parts that directly affect us and are negative. We think we've done something that qualifies us for something. God, I've served you all my life. How dare you? Right? I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. It's all those other people out there. That's the problem. We feel entitled to something. I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. It's the people, God. The people have broken covenants and torn down altars, and and I'm the only one left, and now I'm being hunted, God. You were being hunted for three years, Elijah. Like, what's what's the difference now? God took care of you all those years. What's the difference now? You were kept in safety, away from your enemies. You were fed and clothed and taken care of. What's the difference now? I think the difference was that he got a little bit of hope. A little bit of hope, and he started to feel entitled to it. As if he sent that fire from heaven himself. As if it was his prayers alone that sent the rain. As if he's the only person in all of Israel that's still serving God. Even though all those people just helped him kill 950 prophets of Baal. And later on in this passage, we'll see that there are 7,000 others that have not bowed down to Baal once. But I'm the only one. I'm the only one. You see the blinders. The victim mentality puts up blinders. Verse 11. Go and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And again, a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Didn't he just answer that question? Just listen, he repeats this non-answer. <laughs> he doesn't really answer it all over again. He repeated I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And as usual, in the genius of God, he answers a question we're not even asking. We don't know to ask. Maybe we haven't sifted through the emotion yet to figure it out, but the Lord tells him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Anybody else a little confused? God answers seemingly way off topic. We're not talking about new leaders here and and 7,000. What? I'm talking about the people that are hunting me. You didn't mention Jezebel. What's she going to get? Wait, you want your enemies to like get something, to smite them. God, do something. He didn't answer those. (laughs) See, God, and again, in his genius, he often uses object lessons way way more often than he uses words. There is a joy that comes in the aftermath of a storm. God sent fire and earthquake and wind, but he wasn't in those things. God was in the whisper. He was drawing Elijah in. Elijah, he was drawing Elijah in. He was drawing Elijah further. He was telling him, this isn't about the big stuff anymore, Elijah. This is about you and me. There's that joy in the aftermath. A newfound joy. A gratitude, unlike any previous gratitude, because now you've lived through a thing or two. There's a wonder at the little things after the storm. 
a hard-won childlikeness. One of my favorite preachers, Darius Daniels, said, when God takes you to school, you only know you're in school when class is dismissed. (laughs) After the storm, we're a little bit more humbled. We're a little bit more ready to hear it. God whispers. And you realize he was in all of those things all along. We just couldn't hear it. God is still present, even when he feels absent. I think I think God was trying to teach Elijah that it's not about the big show. The fire, the wind, the ravens, the, the kings and queens. Right? This this is about something so much bigger, but so much smaller too. God is the God of nations. He can handle all of that, but he's also the God of individuals. And he loves Elijah, and he loves you. He can whisper as easy as he can send fire. He can whisper to your soul as easy as he can send an earthquake. And I think maybe God was teaching Elijah, look, Grieve a little bit. I'm in that too. It doesn't always have to be a victory, right? Our culture is not good at this, by the way. Our culture is not good at grieving. We don't know how to handle people that are grieving. We don't know how to recognize it when they are. We don't know what to say or do or like hold our body. We are awkward with people that are grieving. We don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to handle it. God was trying to teach him that it's okay to grieve, that it is not a character defect to grieve, to be upset, to take 40 days off alone by yourself when you have a hard time. People are trying to kill you and and things are crazy. It's okay to take a step back and to grieve. It's actually completely natural because loss is unnatural. You have to tap into a supernatural God to be able to handle it. God is as close as a whisper, and he wants to be the God of your soul, not just the God of your nation. Just kind of let that sink in for a second. I think maybe a lot of us Christians, American Christians right now, have a very nationalized religion. Right? Meaning our sense of whether God loves us or not has somehow gotten caught up in what our rulers are, are doing or not doing. God wants to be the God of your soul, not just the nation. We have to stop getting up, caught up in the politics and the leaders and the rulers of the world. They are not your source of safety. Okay, yes, be involved. I'm not telling you to withdraw completely. In fact, I think we need more Christian people out there in the politics world. I'm not saying that, but yes, be involved. Yes, do your part. Don't withdraw. Elijah couldn't, right? See this. Elijah had his hand by the hand of God. He had his hand in the politics. He couldn't withdraw. He wouldn't, but don't put your sense of safety there. Don't put your sense of duty there, your sense of justice, your sense of servanthood. When you lose a battle, don't let it defeat you. Don't let it defeat your identity in him. God uses those things, those people, those systems. He uses the government. He set them up to be our source of justice here on the earth. But they are not the end all, say all, bottom line of the universe. You know the guy that is. (laughs) Personally, individually, you know him. You can speak to him and he speaks back. We occasionally have to allow God to remind us of the fact that the world's big problems, the big stuff, that's not ours to solve. It's God's to solve. He's got the whole world in his hands. If he wants to use you, great, and sometimes he will. You can ask him to use you, in fact, and he probably will. But he's got this. Along the way, you may find that there are times when the silence speaks more than the big things. The silence speaks. The aftermath of a storm is more powerful to you than the big miracles. 
right, that the whisper comes after. Maybe you'll even find that the whisper is your favorite part. It's not the big things anymore. It's just the, the miracles, the signs and wonders. Maybe it's the whisper afterward because God is in it. I can tell you that is true in my own life right now. We went through crisis after crisis last year. Many of you know my husband went through health crisis after crisis for 18 long months. Believe me, we wanted the big show, the big miracle, the, the healing, the touch from heaven. We saw other people getting it around these altars by our hands. I would pray over people and they'd be healed here. Meanwhile, at home, we're struggling. Oh, we wanted the big show. And it didn't happen like we thought, but here we are on the other side, and we can't help but be grateful for the silence, the calm. We lay in bed sometimes and just say, oh, last year. <laughs> Can you believe we're out of that now? It seems so long ago. And life is good. We never imagined it could be this good a year ago. God is in this. It's a new kind of grateful. It's a deep gratitude now. So we've been through a thing or two. God got us through a thing or two. That new gratitude for each other, our, our relationship, the life that we lead, the, the people who helped us along the way, but most of all for the God that cares about us as individuals. The God who cares for our souls. And we talk a lot in evangelical circles about the, the big stuff, the ways that God can work in big sweeping motions, the baptisms in the Holy Spirit, the, the really big numbers of salvations. We really like those, right? The higher, the better, because each number is, is a soul saved. And I'm not saying any of that is bad. In fact, it's very, very good. But we cannot forget that God also whispers. He whispers. Isn't that miraculous too? He cares enough to whisper to your soul, to mine. It's not just the big stuff. He holds the whole world in his hands, but he cares about little old me too. Yes, silence is uncomfortable. But for Elijah, it was exactly what he needed. He just didn't know it yet. He didn't need the big show. The fire falling from heaven. The windstorm and the earthquake. He didn't need the big miracles. That's what he wanted. But it's not what he needed. He needed a God who whispered to his soul. The God who provided very practical helpers, new leaders in the face of opposition. The God who understands the toll a calling takes on a human soul. The God who allows you to grieve. Silence can be uncomfortable. But as that new parent knows, as the hospital room knows, as Elijah knew in that cave, silence can also be a signal that things have calmed down. Silence can also be a relief. The space where God heals the emotional turmoil that the storm created within your own soul. What if instead of seeing silence as uncomfortable, we begin to see it as something we choose? What if we begin to see it as a blessing? A season of relief and restoration in a chaotic world that so desperately needs a whisper from God. What if we just choose to stop and listen?
just used to running away. Today, God wants to call you back into his arms. Run to me. Come to me, Jesus said. I will give you rest. Come to me. Make your safe place God today. Rest in him. As we learned last week, he is strong enough to carry your burdens all the heavy things that you're carrying. Run to him. And some of us, that means choosing to repent today of allowing the anxiety to be your security blanket. Choose. Don't run to it anymore. Choose to let it go. I know it doesn't feel like you're capable Right? It's, it's too big. It's not something I choose. Why, why would you even insinuate that I would choose this? I'm not saying you did choose it, but you allowed circumstances in your life to overtake you. I'm just saying, stand up, follower of Jesus. Stand up. You have the power. Allow the Holy Spirit to empower you. That is what he does. Tap into that. Ask him for it boldly. Stop just accepting it as normal in your life. Stand up to it. Tell it who's boss. And it's not just you. You have Jesus at your back. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells within you, disciple. Put that against the anxiety. Let them duke it out. The anxiety does not have to continue winning. You just have to stop choosing it. Focus instead on your Savior. Focus instead on the chain breaker. That is what he does. He died on that cross 2,000 years ago to break all of the sin and selfishness and shame and unforgiveness and pain and anxiety in your life. Let him. That is our only job. He made the rest so easy. This is the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. This, you don't have to be in bondage to that stuff anymore. You don't. He nailed it to that cross 2,000 years ago. And all you have to do is claim it today. God is whispering. He's always whispering. But sometimes we let those fears and anxiety be too loud to hear him. Turn it off today. Turn it off. There are some of you today too that are, are still grieving. You've had big things happening lately and instead of allowing the calm after the storm to be calm, you're stuck in crisis mode. You haven't allowed yourself to grieve. You haven't allowed yourself to be called on a 40-day journey with God by yourself. You want to jump back in, get back in, get, get things back to normal. Don't rush it today. Just sit with the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to minister to your soul. That is what He does best. I have sat through worship services 
like this one today and just tears pouring down my face and afterward I said God I don't know what you just healed me from like I legit have no idea what just happened in my soul I just know that you you healed something there's been a weight lifted you don't even have to name it just allow him in worship him as Jason said earlier God resides in the praises of his people just focus on him get your eyes off of the anxiety off of the the thing the crisis the trauma and on to Jesus he will heal you of things you can't even name give you breakthrough in your life you're not even sure how, how to how to talk about it but he does it just focus on him choose to see the beauty in the little things in the worshiping of your savior allow it to be so big and so small at the same time he wants to minister to us as a nation us as a church us as a group of people and you individually and personally he wants to whisper to your soul today I'm just asking that you open yourself to that let him in let him in God is here he's always been here we just have to decide to be here too Father God we open ourselves to you today we repent of, of running to the anxiety, running to the pain, allowing that to be our security blanket of retreating, retreating into the victim mentality. God, we break those chains of, of shame and pain and unforgiveness and bitterness in our lives. Those cycles, sneaky little cycles that keep wanting to come back and take more and more of our joy, of our peace, the love in our lives. We repent. We turn our hearts toward you today. Maybe for the first time ever. Maybe there's people in this room today that are for the first time opening up their hearts to Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I believe in you. Choose to accept your forgiveness in my life. And I want to live my life your way from today forward. I want to be free. I want to be at peace not in, in the absence of the storm, but right in the middle of it. God, give us that peace today. Peace that passes all understanding, the restorative rest that only your whisper can bring. Let us tap into that today. Let us repent. Turn our hearts toward you and have the honest conversations, no matter how angry they sound coming out of our mouths. We know you want to be in those moments, God. We commit ourselves today to giving those moments to you, to retreating into your presence, not away from it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.